Our scripture passage this morning uh, comes from Mark chapter 15. John is passing out um, a handout. This passage is um, packed with so many particular events, things that happen that are noteworthy. Uh, I found an incredibly uh, gifted analysis um, from this uh, Bible teacher by the name of Wilmington. And I thought this would be useful for you to look at and to see all the different aspects of what's going on there because we can't, we can't possibly talk about all of them. We can't possibly touch on uh, the whole sequence of things that take place in terms of the crucifixion. But I thought this would be worthwhile for you to take that and to look it over and to read through and, and see how he has analyzed it. It would be good for you. I'm going to begin reading at uh, verse 21. We, we read that verse last week, um, but we didn't comment on it, and we're not really going to comment on it this morning, other than before I read, just to point something out to you. Um, Mark refers to Simon of Cyrene in terms of being the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, we need to appreciate the fact that that means nothing to us. And it would have meant nothing to uh, many, many, many people within the Roman Empire who received the book of Mark. But it would have meant everything to Mark's original audience, the church in Rome, where the Apostle Paul, in his final salutations, makes reference to at least Rufus as being a member of the church at Rome. And so the obvious connection is is that Mark is pointing out that this one who carried the cross became a Christian. And then his sons likewise being members of the church at Rome. We do know from church history that there came to be a very, very strong group of Christians in Cyrene, which is northern Africa, a very strong group of Christians there. Uh, we can only believe that, uh, that Simon went back to his home country and uh, preached the gospel, uh, and that out of that, his sons grew up in the faith and eventually found themselves in the city of Rome. All of these things are fascinating, fascinating historical aspects of this great story of what God has done in human history for our salvation. So reading from Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him 
to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Grant us, Father, your Holy Spirit and the necessary measure and sufficient measure for us to understand the words which we find here. Father, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for all that Mark has written. Thank you for all that the New Testament scriptures testify to your Son. Thank you for the whole of all of scripture testifying to the seed of the woman who came into this world to bruise the serpent's head. Father, thank you. Bless our hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin on this point to emphasize that the world does not really understand the ways of God. In the United States of America, given its history, given the way in which it was founded, given the uh, prevalence of the Judeo-Christian heritage that was markedly influencing our culture up until about 1960. Given that, it is taking us by surprise that here in the third millennium, second decade of the third millennium, we're beginning to see in ever stronger ways that American citizens, people born here, people going through their educational system here, especially among millennials, don't have a clue about what the Judeo-Christian perspective on God is. They don't have a clue as to what the New Testament really says. They don't have a clue as to who Jesus is. That this knowledge is being evaporated from our culture. That's the only way to explain the kinds of things that we're beginning to see that are being voiced in social media and even showing up when the uh, church at large is being surveyed with respect to their beliefs. So two things came up this week. Yesterday, I, I read uh, on uh, Facebook a reposting of someone else's Facebook post, uh, a young millennial uh, poet. 
And uh, what she says comes into the context, the larger context of identity politics. But um, here's what she said. And before I read this to you, I have to give you some vocabulary lessons because you're not going to understand what I read unless you understand the language of identity politics. Now, uh, if you are cis, C-I-S, and cishet, C-I-S-H-E-T, that means uh, you live according to the gender that was assigned you at birth based upon what you appear to be biologically. In other words, the term cishet male, cishet female, simply means heterosexual and straight. That's all it means. Uh, we could explain all this by simply saying, hey, what's on your birth certificate? That's what you are. That's what you are. But in the world of identity politics, all of that has been cast away completely. Uh, where the idea is that you were actually assigned by those doctors your particular gender at birth. And it's not even rooted in reality. That's something else they're saying. There's no reality to it. It's just assigned to you. It's just a constructed kind of thing. Well, so in the context of all of this identity politics, listen to what this uh, self-identified poet has to say about the Christian faith, and marriage, and human sexuality. She says, quoting her, telling people that the divine ruler of the universe expects them to remain sexually abstinent until legal monogamous marriage between a cishet man and a cishet woman for life is trash and abusive theology, whether you say it nicely or not. For anyone who knows the Bible, therefore knowing the teachings of Moses and the teachings of Jesus, her judgment is that the teachings of Moses and the teachings of Jesus are trash and abusive theology. This idea is no longer on the radical fringes this perspective is becoming increasingly mainstream within our culture. It's deep evidence that a true understanding of the ways of God, a true understanding of Judeo-Christianity, a true understanding of the message of the Bible is being increasingly uh, evacuated out of our culture. It's increasingly disappearing. And caricatures and ugly versions of it uh, being promoted in its place. Now, the second thing that happened this week was Ligonier Ministries, the ministry of R.C. Sproul, put out its extensive survey of American Christianity and American evangelical Christianity called the State of Theology. And uh, I've only read parts of it. Uh, It's a hundred and some pages, so it's going to take a while to get through it all. But here is one clear conclusion. Those who identify as Bible-believing Christians are increasingly disconnected from what the Bible says about the very nature of God and the very nature of salvation. Increasingly disconnected. So even though the churches hold to the inerrancy of the Bible, even though the churches stand in a tradition of the evangelical faith, even though these churches may in fact uh, have this kind of history which they have not repudiated, the people sitting in the pews based upon what they have learned 
out of their Christianity have reached the point where they do not understand that the morality that God has given is in fact set, firm, hasn't changed in 6,000 years, and that marriage is defined by God and not otherwise, and that one's religious hope of salvation rests in Jesus Christ alone and not in any other religious faith in the world. They're losing touch completely with a clear and true and vibrant understanding of the ways of God. Now, I bring this to your attention because as we look at this passage, which focuses upon the crucifixion of Jesus, I want us to think about what the Apostle Paul says about the natural man's knowledge of the ways of God in connection to the crucifixion of Jesus. He puts this forth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And it's really Paul's perspective on the crucifixion, which should be our perspective on the crucifixion. In light of the fact that the, the world doesn't understand the ways of God, that I want us to focus on as we go through this passage. So let me just read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and Gentile, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And there's an important connection then between Paul's presentation of the cross of Jesus and Mark's account here of the crucifixion. I want us to appreciate this. This is sort of the main thought that I want us to carry through as we go through Mark's passage. The crucifixion of Jesus underscores how the world does not understand the ways of God. Because the way of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is in fact God's power. So I want us to appreciate the world does not understand the way of the cross. The world does not understand Jesus and him crucified. So we can approach the passage in Mark by sort of looking at, at the world's not understanding things according to three things they just don't get. Uh, first would be, why was Jesus crucified? The world doesn't get it. Why was Jesus crucified? Why was Jesus mocked? And then thirdly, why was Jesus forsaken? 
We see this through the passage. We see Jesus crucified. We see Jesus mocked. We see Jesus forsaken. Why? And in looking at the biblical answers to this, we can see what the world really doesn't understand, but we'll also see the wisdom of God. Now, in the first place, why was Jesus crucified? Uh, So verses 21 through 28 give us two distinct reasons for why Jesus was crucified. One set of reasons operate on the human level. The other set of reasons operate on the divine level. So from the human perspective, Jesus was crucified because, as we looked at last week, there were all of the politics involved in this. Uh, There was the Jewish leadership who felt threatened by Christ in every way. They knew early on they needed to kill this guy. And so they finally reached the point where there's an opportunity provided for them by by Judas Iscariot. Uh, But in order to get it fully accomplished, they've got to include the Roman authorities. And Pontius Pilate, in the sovereignty of God, several times makes it clear, I find no guilt in this man. And he does not want to give in to what the Jews want to do, but in the final analysis, being weak in terms of character, but being savvy in terms of politics, he agrees to have Jesus crucified. So at the human level, uh, what this demonstrates is that even when people understand and know that someone is totally and completely innocent, if it suits their purposes, if it supports their power, if it preserves their position, they will do the greatest injustice to those who, in fact, are so clearly in the right and rather than the wrong. We've said this before. Jesus being crucified is the index of human sinfulness. It's not just what we inherited from Adam that put Jesus upon the cross, but in the actual working out of things historically, we see that for political power, people will put the one who is most innocent to the cruelest kind of death. We need to understand that. We need to see that Jesus was crucified because people are at war against God. The second thing is the reasons that would would operate at the divine level. Um, In the first place, of course, the crucifixion is that which is prophesied by God in the Old Testament. So there's the divine level, the divine concern to make sure that all that was written of the coming Messiah would, in fact, be historically fulfilled. So if you were to think about Psalm 22, if you were thinking about Isaiah 53, uh, those are passages which set forth the death of Christ. In Psalm 22 in particular, uh, if you know that, if you've ever looked it up and really read it and studied it, it begins with these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, then if you read through the whole psalm, you begin to see all of the parallels that exist between that psalm as it was written a thousand years before Jesus came, written by King David, really clearly do not relate to anything that David experienced. They were prophetic in terms of what Jesus was going to experience upon the cross. And then Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant passage. It's not clear that that would be the death by crucifixion. It doesn't have to be, but it just points to the fact that God's suffering servant was going to come and give, as it were, his, his life as a ransom for many. So the the fulfillment of Scripture was one of the divine levels as to why Jesus needed to be, had to be crucified. But the second reason gets more at the heart of what the Apostle Paul is talking about. The cross was God's way of displaying to the human race that the human race is 
foolish in its fallenness and of itself unable to really understand the ways of God. Paul says in verse 18 again of chapter 1 of Corinthians, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Why is it foolishness? Well, verse 19, because God has a stated purpose involved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God designed the cross to contradict the fallen wisdom of fallen human beings. Now, Paul taught this in Romans chapter 1, verse 22, where Paul says that when the human race fell, it was claiming to be wise, but instead became fools. Now, I want you to think back to the dynamics of what was going on in the garden, because that's what Paul is pointing back to. Uh, when the devil presents an alternative version of reality, understand what I just said. When the devil presents an alternative version of reality, every lie is an alternative version of reality. Every challenge to the word of God is an alternative version of reality. Eve, acting upon her own wisdom, but having heard the kinds of disingenuous alterations of the truth by Satan, acting upon her own wisdom, thinking to be wise, she chose to eat the forbidden fruit. And in that great act, demonstrate her foolishness. That's what Paul is concerned about. But he goes on in chapter 1 of Corinthians again, verses 20 to 21. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God is telling us through Paul that man's search for God through man's own mind, through man's own heart, has never led to God. Man has never found God on his own. Man's search for God has completely failed. Verse 22, 25, Paul speaks then to how people do search for God. The Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom. Now we can note how around the cross, the, the Jewish leadership were doing that very thing. They were demanding as a sign that Jesus who they call the, the, the king of Israel, would come down for the cross so we can see and believe in him, is what they say. But Paul says in response to that, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So it was God's purpose that his son would be crucified to display his wisdom in the face of the fallenness of man's foolishness, the foolishness in which human beings think they're wise. Now, if we stop and think about what Paul is saying here, about the reality of the world not knowing God, and the reality that the world in its wisdom seeks something else other than the truth of God, 
we have to think then, well, what does it mean then for us to be salt and light? How are we as Christians to confront this truth about the way things are? What does it mean to share our faith? What does it mean to be committed to the Great Commission? What does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? Because we can see that our culture is rebelling ever so more strongly against the true knowledge of the true God. Uh, I, I thought about this. I tried to picture myself having a conversation with this poet whose quote I had read to you. I tried to think about how could I approach her views? How could I talk to her about where she's coming from? And in and, and giving this some thought, I go to myself, I said, I don't have a clue. I don't have a clear insight as to actually where I would begin with someone committed to her misthinking and misunderstanding about God such that she would call the, the key tenets of the Christian faith abusive and trashy theology. But then I stopped and I thought, but this doesn't stop prayer. This doesn't stop me caring about her as God would want me to care about my neighbor. It doesn't matter that I don't understand how to talk to her and how to approach her because God can lead and God does lead. And I need to trust that. I need to believe that even though the story of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who really don't understand the ways of God's truth, God still saves. God has always taken the message of the cross forward into that kind of context, that kind of situation with those kinds of people. We need to keep our confidence there. We need to not be fearful of engaging people who demonstrate that they're at war with God. Now, continuing on then in verses 29 through 32, the second thing. Why is the Savior mocked? Why is Jesus mocked? Well, when we look at what goes on in the text, we see that the mocking of Jesus is really a combination of of half-truths and outright lies. You know, you can read that and you can see how this reflects something that Jesus may have said about himself in the temple. Clearly, it's reflecting the false accusations brought against Jesus uh, when he was tried before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. But the reasons for the mocking of Jesus ultimately lie or ultimately center upon the truthfulness of God's word. So once again, the truthfulness of God's words prophetically. Uh, we see the mockery, this specific kind of mockery uh, concerning Jesus was prophesied. Mark says that those who passed by were wagging their heads. They were misquoting Jesus about the temple, telling him to come down off the cross. And those things are the same kinds of things that are mentioned in Psalm 22. Uh, verses 6, 7, and 8, where the psalmist 
This would be prophetically uh, the words of Jesus. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So in Psalm 22, those words are presented as a mockery of the one who's being crucified. And that's exactly what's taking place. Jesus is being mocked in fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures, God's word that has never failed. But the further reason that Jesus is mocked is because God is revealing, as it were, the the misguided and twisted theology of those who are at war against God. Uh, We see this in the fact that they're mockingly demanding of Jesus a sign. Verse 31-32 in Mark, quote, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Now, you notice that those are the words specifically of the chief priest and the scribes, which means, notice what they say. He saved others. Why doesn't he come down from the cross and save himself? They are indicting themselves by what they say. They recognize that Jesus had the capacity to heal others, to take away their blindness, to enable cripples to walk so that the deaf could hear, the mute could speak, even raising some from the dead. They recognized that he could cast out demons. They recognized his power to, quote, save others. And so they're demanding of him, save yourself and we will believe that you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. So although they understand the power of Christ, his power to do this with others, what they do not understand is why Jesus will not do this for himself. Why won't Jesus come down from the cross? Now, here's what some noted Bible scholars have said about this, some good insights uh, concerning the Jewish religious leaders, basically saying that they evaluate, remember this is in the context of their theology, they evaluate divine power purely in human self-serving, self-serving terms according to their own standards of justice. In, in other words, they mock Jesus, come down off the cross, you've saved others, save yourselves, because they would have done the same thing. If they had had the power of Jesus to save others, they surely would have saved themselves from what was taking place because they saw their theology in terms of the exercise of power. But here's what they did not understand and and what the world cannot understand. Jesus taught the disciples that if they were to follow him, they must take up the cross, not come down from the cross. The world doesn't understand that the ultimate way of God is the way of suffering. They don't understand. One commentator said this, a miraculous rescue would only have proven that Jesus was a superman, not necessarily the Messiah, not necessarily the Son of God. 
But this still doesn't get at the heart of why Jesus uh, will allow himself to be mocked in this way. Why didn't Jesus come down from the cross? Do you know? Do you know why Jesus did not come down from the cross? What actually held Jesus on the cross? Michael Card, who's a Christian musician, writes incredible lyrics. In his song, Why, he writes, Why did it have to be a heavy cross he was made to bear? And why did they nail his feet and hands His love would have held him there. It's the most significant insight that what kept Jesus on the cross was in fact nothing less than his great love for those who mocked him, for those who were at war against him. The scriptures tell us Because Jesus loved his own. He loved his sheep. He loved his bride. He loved all that the Father had given to him who were yet his enemies, yet at war with God. He loved them so that with his blood he could ransom a great multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus was mocked and permitted that mockery in order to show how much he loved us. Thirdly, why is the Savior forsaken? Verses 33 to 39. This is not something the world comprehends. You know, the the, the noted atheist Richard Dawkins in, in one of his books has described Christian theology as celestial child abuse, that God would put his son into the world and then uh, beat his son up uh, for the sake of others. Celestial child abuse. Um, The idea that Jesus would suffer to atone for our sins honestly can hardly be grasped by the darkness that exists in fallen human beings. And it can hardly be accepted by by those who are unwilling to acknowledge that they've ultimately sinned against God. But this is what the forsakenness of Jesus is all about. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we could be reconciled. Now, the first thing that Mark shows us is is the forsakenness that Jesus endured in two ways. In the text, verse 33, there's the darkness. For three hours, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness descends. What's interesting is that the historian Thales a a Greek Roman, Greco-Roman historian mentions in one of his works about this darkness that came over the Roman Empire 
This was not localized to Jerusalem. Julius Africanus, who was a a third century Christian writer, records this. He points out that this was not an eclipse of the sun. If you know anything about astronomy, and if you know anything about the dating of Passover, if you know anything about the spring equinox, if you know anything about when full moons occur, if you know anything about when lunar eclipses occur, Passover comes after the spring equinox, right after the first full moon. Which means that often during the time of Passover, there's a full moon. But a full moon is on the very opposite side of the earth from when a solar eclipse can occur. It's always been that way, always is that way. Astronomically, it's impossible for this to have been a solar eclipse. Nothing could have brought this about except God himself supernaturally bringing darkness upon the earth for three hours as a sign of God pouring out his judgment upon his own son. That's why, at the ninth hour, Jesus utters those lines from Psalm 22, verse 1. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Theologically, we look at this and we say, this is the Father turning his back upon the Son. This is Jesus, who in his perfect human nature had never experienced a moment of anything but heavenly fellowship with his Father. And I use the word heavenly to understand that the fellowship that Jesus, in his human nature, experienced with his heavenly Father was, in fact, equivalent to what we will experience everlastingly once we have left here and been glorified. Perfect fellowship, undiminished fellowship, the fullness of what God is able to reveal of his love and grace and goodness to someone who walks with God perfectly and who has never sinned. The soul of Jesus had never felt anything but perfect union and communion with God the Father. But as that darkness comes upon the face of the earth, the Father turns his face away. And the soul of Jesus begins to experience what it is to be alienated, separated, bearing the weight of sin, the guilt, the shame. That is, in fact, what all of us who are at war with God so deeply deserve. Nothing, nothing separated the soul of Jesus from the wrath of God. Because you and I have theology that doesn't understand God all that well, even as Christians. In our worst days, we have never felt the wrath of God the way Jesus felt the wrath of God against him. 
when the Apostle Paul says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is why Jesus was (coughs) forsaken, in order to accomplish all of the work that the Father had given him to do. And, And Mark points to things which demonstrate that that work was fully and finally completed. In verse 37, I want you to note Jesus doesn't die in a passive sense. Death does not overtake him. He dies at the moment he chooses. We're told that Jesus breathes his last. He dies by his choice. His life comes to an end under his sovereign control. Jesus himself has said, no man takes my life away from me. Jesus said, I will lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus dies, actively dies, which demonstrates that the fullness of the work that he had come to do was completed. Secondly, as perhaps one of the most significant representations that the work of Christ was finished and full and completed. We read in verse 38, the curtain in the temple which separated the most holy place, the holy of holies, from everything else in the temple. That curtain was torn from top to bottom. We know later in the book of Acts that many priests hearing the gospel message became followers and believers. Who would have known about the destruction of the curtain in the temple? Who would have known that the curtain was rent from top to bottom? It was some 60 feet tall. Who would have known that that could not happen by any human agency? It would have been all those priests who were part of that sacrificial system who would have known the day, the hour, the moment that that curtain was torn into. And as the writer to Hebrews says, Jesus is the new and living way behind the curtain. It was torn so that all might know that there is now one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. But finally, verse 39. How do we know that that there was power and finished work of Christ in his death? There's good reasons why Mark specifically wants us to know about the centurion. The centurion, uh, in his place within the Roman cohort, would have been administrating everything from the time that Jesus was handed over to the Romans. He was there as, as Pilate uh, presents Jesus to the crowd. And the crowd chooses to have Jesus crucified and Barabbas released. He would have been the one responsible for overseeing the flogging of Jesus. And then the one to see that Jesus was properly taken from the the. the the courtroom of Pilate out up the Via Dolorosa to the place of the cross. 
he would have been the, the, the chief official overseeing everything going on. He would have heard all the testimonies of the Jews against Jesus. He would have seen the conduct of Jesus in the midst of all of this. He would have heard all the words of Christ, which Christ uttered upon the cross. And when he breathes his last, when Jesus dies, the impact of all of that brings him to the confession. This man was truly a son of God. If any, anything points to the evidence of the power of the cross, it's this man's confession of Jesus. We recognize the world does not understand the ways of God. To this world, the way of the cross, the way of the Son of God, the way of suffering and dying for sinners, it doesn't make sense to anyone who's at war with God until that spiritual battle fatigue sets in. Only when people grow so weary and heavy laden in their war against God, only when they know their lives are broken by their own sin, only when they begin to see that the message of the cross can bring to their souls the wondrous love of God. Will the message of the cross cease being foolishness and become the power of God unto salvation? Only then will they be able to see Jesus, his wondrous love, bearing the dreadful curse for our souls. Your weapon of warfare as a Christian is not the power of politics. It's not the eloquence of your words. It's not your quick wit and debating people on Facebook. It must be the power of prayer. It must be the willingness to still love those who hate all the things that you see to be dear. It must be the willingness to engage people out of grace and kindness and goodness. Because it's only when people come to the point in which they know that they're weary and heavy laden will they come to Jesus for rest. Almighty God, we pray that you would help us as those who truly have been blessed, so deeply blessed by what you have done in your Son, uh, to love those who are still at war with you and to be willing to keep the message and our prayers going forward. Father, we ask that even in this day, in which there is such hostility to 
who Jesus is, that you would nevertheless keep applying the blood of Christ shed on behalf of many from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And Lord, be pleased to use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.